You guys keep a secret? Just the 250 of us? All right, don't tell anybody. Uh, if you didn't believe in a God of miracles, your pastor, he's getting married. This last week, went down to California. Her name is Jill, and uh, went down to California with a ring and a question, and she said yes, which is great. Um, I'd have made it a lot more expensive. Uh, no, it would have been, but, um, but uh, it turns out when you get engaged, you get a cheesecake, so that's exciting. Uh, but we, um, we, we will be having the wedding down in the Sacramento area, California, June 8th of this year, um, and she, but she is, she's moving up here this way. There was a, in my pastoral contract, there was a no move, no trade clause, so church wouldn't let me go, so I'm going to stay here. She'll be coming up. Uh, we'll probably have an Alaskan reception at the end of June where you'll get a meter. Now, some of you guys are like, I didn't even know you were dating someone. Well, that was on purpose. Um, I, I hid her in California just because, frankly, I don't trust any of you. Um, <laughs> and now that I've locked it down, she can come up here, and uh, we'll, we'll be good. But I'll tell you what, uh, Jill has been an absolute gift. Beautiful woman, a heart for the Lord, a heart for his people, and to receive that has been this humbling, humbling um, gift to, to be given by our God. And this morning, uh, it, it works to transition us into this passage in Romans 15. We're, we're talking about unity. And on, on June 8th, I'm, I'm a Mary Jill. Um, now, this has been a horrible year for me in some ways. Uh, I got a new hip. So all of my jokes about my waddling hips, those are going out the window. And then I, one of my favorite goes-tos was being a bachelor. Now, that's going to go away. So I don't know. I'm, I'm running out of sermon material. Uh, but what Pastor Larry told me is that, that a spouse still gives you a lot of uh, sermon illustrations. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, <laughs> But this so marriage is this kind of this mysterious act, right, where God unifies two people. It says we become one flesh. It's this crazy math that says one plus one equals one. And, and in this process, God is inviting us into this picture of the unifying love of, of Jesus and, and his bride, the bride of Christ. But what is this unity? Well, well, two things that this unity is not. The first one is it's not union. It's not simply union, meaning it's not just the bringing of two people together in the same time and space. Um, on June 8th, Jill and I will be legally declared married in the eyes of the state of California and will be spiritually declared married in the eyes of God. But that doesn't mean that we will automatically experience the, the unity, the love, the faithfulness um, that God calls us into. The word on the street is you have to work at that. So I guess we'll, we'll see. I thought marriage was going to be easy. Uh, that's why I said, I asked her, but I don't know. We'll find out. But ju- just in the same way, just because we go to church once a week together, or you go to a Bible study together, or you are in a small group together, just because we're in the same space together, that doesn't mean that we're experiencing healthy unity. We can still totally be tearing each other apart, gossiping, judging each other. So, so it's deeper than just union. Spiritual unity is deeper than just being together. And it also doesn't mean uniformity. Uniform, uniformity means being the exact same, like having no difference. Um, Jill and I are very different people. Praise the Lord, right? Do not want to marry myself. She, she is an introvert. <laughs> She's an internal processor. <laughs> she loves to clean. She doesn't watch sports. That's what I said. <laughs> I am, I don't know if you guys knew this, but I'm an extrovert, right? I like to process things externally. 
I occasionally watch sports. <laughs> I also occasionally clean. But you know, unity doesn't mean being the exact same. In fact, your differences can complement each other. So the way I see it, she can clean while I'm watching sports, right? Is that, is that not the... Okay, I, I don't know. We haven't done premarital yet. I gotta clean up my act. Her parents are listening to this on podcast later. Um, to, to be unified, it doesn't mean being exactly the same. And this is, this is the beauty and the diversity of the body of Christ. Here we come in. All of us have different personalities, different gifts, uh, different, different strengths and weaknesses. And as we come together, there's a real beauty. It doesn't mean we all do the same thing. We got some people who are preaching the word. We got some people who love being next door with the kids, crazies. Uh, we, love, we have people who love to work with their hands, people who love to encourage, people who show hospitality. And we need all of those things to have the beauty of the diversity in the unity of the body of Christ. And what we're going to see in today's passage, unity is not union and it's not uniformity. We're going to see how true Jesus-centered unity works in in the body. What he calls us to in in Romans 15, we're just walking through the book of Romans verse by verse, and and, in chapter 15 where we are today, he starts off by saying, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We're keeping in context, if you've been with us, the last two weeks, we looked in chapter 14, where he dealt with the issues of the strong uh, versus the weak. I'm obviously the one on the left. And, and he says, there are, how do we come alongside the stronger, how does the stronger brother come alongside the, the weaker brother? And I really think the chapter break might be better at the end of today's passage, at the end of verse 13 of chapter 15, because really, it's all the same subject. And Paul is going to wrap up and answer the question, how do we find unity among those who have different opinions, different convictions, different conscience than, than we do? How do we find unity in the midst of diversity? So let's, let's look at this together. First of all, there's a mandate here, a command that Paul's going to give us, and it's that unity puts other people first. Unity puts other people first. Let's look at this verse, first two verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You see the other's centeredness of this unity that we're, we're called into. Now, this is flying in the face of what our culture and media want to tell us today. When you're trying to determine, what, what do I do with my life? What steps do I take? Um, the media and culture tells us, ask the questions, what do I want? What's best for me? And that flies in the face of what Paul is calling us into. He says the question that we should ask each other is, how can I best help my sibling who's in need, who's fallen down, who who needs assistance? How do I build them up? How do I put them first? That should be the question, the kind of question that guides our decision making. So two different phrases here we pick out of these first two verses. First of all, he says we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. This word, this phrase, it meant to, to pick up with your hands, to carry or to bear, to put upon oneself. So he says, they have a failing, they've got a weakness. He says, you pick that up and you carry it. Now we might, we might, we, we might say, wait a second, that's not fair. I didn't make this mistake. I didn't fall down. That's their mess. They deal with it. I am so glad that is not what my Savior told me. And he didn't look at me and go, you got yourself in this mess. You get yourself out of it. You pay for your sins. That is not our Savior, and that's not what we're invited into here either. either. Second phrase, he says, for his good to build him up. This is a construction word. It means to build a house, to erect a building. We are building each other up, constructing something, he says, for our good. Now, what is it? What good are we moving to? What is this building supposed to look like? Well, if you rewind back to Romans chapter 8, Paul told us, he said in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And we hear that verse all the time. But what is that good? What what is he pressing us into? It's certainly not my definition of good. Look at what he says in verse 29. To be conformed to the image of his son. 
The direction God's taking us in our lives is for us to know and become more like Jesus. He says that's what we're called to do, to come along each other and point each other to this kind of Christ-likeness. Ephesians 4 gives us the, the answer. He says in verse 12, their responsibility, talking about the leadership of the church, is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church. There's that construction language again, the body of Christ. We're not lone rangers. We're in this together. And then verse 13, this will continue, this building up until what? What's our goal, Paul? We all come to such unity. There's that word, our, our theme of today. The unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son so that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Our church's mission statement is to present everyone complete in Christ, that they would know him fully, become like him fully. This is our end. So the question should be, how can my attitude and my actions help this person point them toward knowing and and becoming like Jesus in deeper ways than ever before? And listen, making fun of them, judging them on petty differences will not accomplish that. Words that encourage, build up, not tear down. Actions that put them first, not me first. This is what he calls us to. Now, when we talk about living to please others and carry their burdens, we need, to, we need to say what we're not saying here, lest you hear Paul's words wrong. First of all, this is not codependency. This is, this is a language in addiction world. Um, this means codependency is when you develop this unhealthy relationship with somebody else, kind of this symbiotic relationship where, where you have an excessive reliance on them for your approval and your identity. It's based on them. That's not healthy. Where you can't or they can't make a decision or think a thought without the other person. And all this does is enable poor habits. Um, it's not helping anything. He's not calling us into a codependent relationship on another person. He's also not calling us to people pleasing. He's not invi- he's not, Paul's not saying just be a doormat and whatever somebody says, you just do it. Mindlessly, whatever they demand, whatever they tell you to do, you just do it. That's not, the context here is what? We're talking about the strong and the weak brothers over non-essential issues. So when it comes to whether or not to drink alcohol, whether or not to get a tattoo, he says, put them first. What he's not saying is waver on the truth. Read Galatians. The harshest words of Paul come when somebody was trying to mess with the gospel. Somebody was trying to waver with the truth. And loving someone, he says, we build them up in their faith. So the question is, what points them to Jesus? Not just doing whatever they want like their personal doorman. And sometimes, sometimes love means getting up in somebody's face. Speaking truth in love, humbly, gently, but telling them what they need to hear even if they don't want to hear it. Sometimes love means saying no to someone. It does not mean being a doormat. Last thing it doesn't mean is that there is no pleasure in this for ourselves. He says not to please ourselves. Our aim, our primary aim in this is not to please ourselves. And yet, this doesn't mean, some people think the Christian life just means that like, if you're smiling, you're doing something wrong. The only way to follow Jesus is to be the most miserable person possible. The more miserable you are, the more faithful of a servant, right? I got to live in the desert, can't wear clothes, can't drink water, won't have Wi-Fi. Like, whatever it is, it's the most miserable place possible. That means I'm serving Jesus the most. That's not true. There's this line of of, um, thinking called asceticism, which is basically a denial of any physical, um, earthly pleasures. And we think that the more we do that, the more we impress God. And and that's not the Bible. So, So that's not what he's calling us into. In fact... When he says to put other people first, here's the, here's the secret. That is where we find true joy. He says, what I want, I want to give you. He says, you don't have to look like this clown, right? You don't have to be bummed out to follow Jesus. I want you to have the cry, laugh, face emoji. Like, I want this to be y- your life. And what did Jesus say? It's better to give than receive. 
Did you hear that? It's better. There's, there's more joy in that. In fact, when in John 15, he's talking to his disciples. He says, love one another. Why? That your joy may be full. You want full joy? It's not going to be from putting yourself first. You look at anybody who's followed that path, putting them, themselves first after every decision. Are they happy? Are they full of joy? Absolutely not. He says, you want to find true joy? And you're going to find it in the person of Jesus and in loving other people before yourself like he did. That's where your joy will be made full. So this mandate for unity is to put other people first. Their needs, their good. But how do we become like this? How do we become like this kind of a person? Because you look around in a room, I, I look at myself first and foremost, and this, we fall short of this, right? So God's got a plan for us. Look at the model. The model, he says, unity comes from Jesus. We're going to look at um, the living word first. He says, for Christ, he is the living word, the word made flesh and dwelt among us. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What's Paul saying here? He says, Jesus didn't come to this earth for a cush life, be hand-fed grapes and be, you know, have palm branches waving at him and kind of life is good. What did he come to do? He came to absorb the wrath of God that was placed upon me because of my sin. That's what Jesus came to do. And the reproaches, they say, people who were hating on God, they fell on him. They insulted him. They spit on him. And eventually they killed him for my sake, for your sake. Praise the Lord. And this is what he invites us into as well. And brothers and sisters, he's not just saying here, Jesus is our example. Like we're just supposed to look at Jesus and then copy him, like do as he did. Right? Like you're doing yoga and you're watching your instructor do upward, downward, overdue dog. I don't know, whatever. I don't, I don't do yoga. But we're not just watching an instructor and then trying to copy him. He says what's happened is the very life of Christ. When we, when we place our faith in Jesus, we're made one with him. And so now it's his very heart that's beating in our chest. And the kind of life that Jesus showed us here on earth, more than just an example, that is the life that lives in me now. And so I'm going to become, as I look to him, I'm going to become more like him. And we're going to start to live the life that Jesus lived because that is his new life in us. A life that is not as concerned about my comforts and my rights as it is concerned about the salvation of other people, the good of other people. That's who Jesus is. If we're in him, that's how we're going to start to look as well. So there's the living word he gives us in verse 3. And then he wants to show us the written word in verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction to teach us something, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. See, when you read the Bible, what you're going to encounter is story after story of how faithful God was, how his love has never failed, how he's always been good to the people who will trust him. And then I so badly need to be reminded of that every single day. My God is for me and not against me. My God is going to get me through everything that he's leading me into. And if we're in the word, if we're in the word, it offers us two things he says here that we need so desperately. He says it gives us endurance, the ability to, to make it through what God has called us into, and encouragement. What's the word in there? Courage. To give us courage to go through what it is that he's calling us to, to do, which leads us to the only thing that will allow us to put one weary foot over the other. He says that we might have hope. Scriptures, the scriptures, the written word of God gives us encouragement and endurance that we might have hope. See, we're never going to be able to put somebody else first. We're never going to be able to deny ourselves and love sacrificially if we have no hope. It's not going to happen. We're going to quit. We're going to give up. Hope is what kept Jesus moving through the garden of Gethsemane to be able to say, not my will, but yours be done. 
Hope is what let Jesus march up that, that hill of Calvary, of Golgotha, faithfully to have the nails driven into his hands. Why? Hebrews 12 tells us why. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. Endurance. Courage. Why? Because of the hope. He knew what was on the other side of glory. He knew what was coming to be back at his father's right hand and to, to bring us into relationship with him and his father. It was worth it. And so he endured. And that's the only thing that will give us the courage and endurance to move through whatever God's calling you into right now in this season of your life or the seasons to come is this hope, this hope that he offers. And we'll, we'll talk more about that hope at the end. The model is Jesus in, the, in, the, in his living word as an example and his life in us and the written word that gives us endurance and encouragement. And then the method here, what's the method? The method of this unity that we're called into, it, it, unity comes through prayer. Look at verse five. This is a prayer of Paul's. It gives us two prayers in this section. First one is, may the God of endurance and encouragement from scripture grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord, in, in accord with Christ Jesus. If, we, if, if this thing's gonna happen, if we're gonna be the kind of people that God has called us to be, it's got to be his work and not ours. So how do we know if we're relying on him, on his spirit, or if we're trying to do this thing on our own? Well, it primarily comes through prayer. See, if God doesn't do this thing, if God doesn't unite this group of selfish, self-absorbed sinners to change our hearts that are so prone to wander into these self-sacrificing hearts that put other people first, and if God doesn't do it, it won't be done. It will not happen and so ask you this question, how often do you pray? How often are you in communication with God? I mean, he invites us into extended periods of time with him, just us, just me and Jesus alone, he, to be praying with our spouse, with our, with our family members, with, with the people in, in the body of Christ. He, he calls us to, what Paul says, pray without ceasing, always have an attitude, living in the presence and dependence of, of God. And, and listen, hear me on this. This is not a, a legalistic checklist so that God will be, the more you pray, the more God will smile upon you and give you things you want. Prayer is the primary indicator of if I'm relying on him or myself. And if God doesn't give us the endurance, if God doesn't give us the courage, if God doesn't show us the hope, if God doesn't unify us to man, it's game, set, and match. It's ball game. Unity comes through prayer. Then the motive, why do we do this? Unity glorifies God. Verse six, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we do this? Why do we become unified? Why do we build other people up? The reason you and I exist, the reason God created us was to glorify him. And our greatest joy, our greatest joy is in glorifying him, not ourselves. I'm never gonna find true joy in the shallow offerings of this world cheap entertainment on Netflix, looking for temporary pleasure, immediate gratification that we might try to find in pornography or sugar or wherever it is that we're turning. None of those things are evil in themselves, but if we're looking for true joy there, they're going to disappoint. They make crummy gods. He says, true joy is in seeing and savoring the God of the universe to know him and become like him. That's where awe and joy are found. When I went down to get my hip surgeries back in January, we went down to Phoenix. And so we drove, mom and I drove north uh, about four hours and went to the Grand Canyon. Had never been there before, taking pictures of the Grand Canyon. As I stood there at the edge of this thing, it didn't even look real. Like, I can't, it, it looks like a painting. My brain, like, can't even comprehend. I'm standing in awe of the thing that I'm beholding. Now, as I'm standing there looking at the Grand Canyon, you know what I'm not doing? I'm not peering over my cell phone looking at pictures of the Grand Canyon on Instagram. That would be insane. 
Look up at the real thing. There's truer joy. There's more awe in observing the real thing than looking at pictures of it. You don't stand at the foot of Everest playing Candy Crush, right? He says, I've called you into something deeper and sweeter here. You want to know true joy? Behold the glory of your God. And the way that we do this, and this is, this is a key part of this, he says that together you may with one voice glorify God. The way that we glorify him is not by many different voices singing many different songs. I've mentioned before a, a substitute teacher at KBH Elementary, and um, sometimes I'll help out the music teacher. And when we have beginning band, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Um, they have these instruments that I like to call noise weapons. And they... Um, when this beginning band, there's, I, 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 well, I got to be careful with my words. I think some of them go to this church, but um, they try really hard. How's that? Uh, make a joyful noise? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but they are not usually uh, playing at the same tempo. They're not usually playing all the same notes. Like, it does not really glorify the writer of that song. Let's put it that way. Um, and, there, but there is, there is maybe someday, by the grace of God, um, they can become this beautiful orchestra. Now, an, an orchestra, to be, to be beautiful, to glorify the one who wrote the song, that doesn't mean that they're all playing the same instrument, right? Of course not. And that doesn't even mean they're all playing the same note at the same time. We have harmonies, we have melodies, we have people dropping in and out. Again, this is not uniformity. God's not calling us all to look the same, act the same, uh, think the same. But what he says is when you come together, when you come together, when that orchestra, when it plays that one song in harmony with one another, it glorifies the conductor. It glorifies the one who wrote the song. And what God calls us here is when we as believers, with different gifts, different personalities, different walks of life, when we come together, when we serve each other, when all of us are putting the other one before ourselves, it becomes this beautiful symphony. And in one voice, we show the world who our God is and we glorify him. And this is where we're reminded, man, the small things are the big things. Because remember, the context here is the strong and the weak. And so when you lay down your right to drink a beer, because you have freedom to do so in Christ, because you knew that in that act, your brother who struggles in that area, you're going to do a better job at pointing him to Jesus. You know what happens there? That's so much bigger than not drinking that beer. What you've done in that moment is you've showed the world how God loves us. That's huge. That's eternal. When we welcome each other, the way that Christ welcomed us, we magnify, we glorify the God who welcomed us into his presence. We show the world Yahweh with skin on. We show what he looks like, alive and living color. And that brings us to our main idea, verse 7. It says that unity magnifies Jesus. Look at verse 7. Therefore, so that, that word therefore, he's wrapping up everything he just said in the first six verses. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. For what? For the glory of God. Again, this glorifies our God. Now, how do we accept each other? We said last week the same way that Jesus accepted us, not because we deserve it. If you're waiting to accept somebody when they deserve it, you'll never accept anybody. <laughs> None of us deserve it, right? That's the whole point of the gospel. But he says when you welcome the undeserved sinner, who maybe they've even wronged you, and what, what are you doing? You're lifting high the name of Jesus who welcomed us as sinners into his presence. So let me ask you this. Is there someone that you wish didn't come to this church? Let's have some real talk here. You go, man, I love this place, but gosh, I wish that family wasn't here. I wish that individual wasn't here. Is there somebody that you would totally refuse to invite into your home? That you would never, you would hate the thought of sitting across from them at a meal? Now, why is that? Now, I say that with sensitivity because I know there are relationships, there's abuse in our background. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not calling us into situations that would not be safe or wise. But you know what I'm getting at. 
where is there division in your life with somebody else, a brother or sister in Christ, namely? Paul is speaking here to those who are very, very, very prone to fight, who are not prone to welcome each other. He wouldn't mandate it if that was happening. He's not like, hey guys, remember, breathe air. The reason he mandates this is because the people in Rome, the Jewish and Gentile Christians, were not doing this well. Luckily, we don't struggle with that here today, right? Pastor Larry said it this way. He said, we will never have unity or a focused purpose as a church if we're not able to accept one another. We're never going to be the people that God called us to be. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And if we're not in this together, we're never going to be able to do the things God has called us to do, to go out and make disciples, to show how lovely he is. It becomes like a spiritual autoimmune disease. Remember, autoimmune is where your, your body's attacking itself, essentially. And when we're not accepting each other, we are destroying ourselves. We are one body in Christ. And he calls us here to build each other up, not tear each other down. Now, we're going we're gonna to skip over the section here of the Messiah, verses 8 through 12. There's a lot there. We don't have time to unpack it. But Paul wants to show how Jesus came to unite the strong and the weak. He also came to unite the Jew and the Gentile, a lot of racial, a lot of ethnic tension there. We saw that in Romans 9 through 11. You go back and read that and see the way God brought them all together. Uh, But we're going to have to shelf that one for this morning. The last thing we're going to look at in this chapter is that the the manna from heaven, the manna from heaven that unity, unity gives hope. Unity gives hope. I love this prayer and how he caps this section. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing faith so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope hope. Abound in hope. Now, two questions I want to ask about this. First of all, a hope in what? It's not just have hope, like hope something happened. Hope, hope what? Hope in what? And hope for what? So what is it that we're hoping in, and what is it that we're hoping for? Two questions. First of all, hope in what? Hope in what? Look at verse 12. It answers this question. Again, Isaiah says, he quotes the Old Testament a few times in this chapter. He says, the root of Jesse, which is talking about the Messiah, the one that comes from the line of David, will come, and he did come, In him, in him, in him, the Gentiles will hope. In him. So really the question shouldn't be hope in what. It should be hope in who. Or hope in whom. I don't know. I can't remember grammar. But it's in Jesus. It's in a person. Listen, the ground ground of all of my hope, it's not in me. It's it's not in my intelligence. It's not in my decision making. It's not in my just amazing good looks. It cannot be. It, It cannot be in my health. Like how good my hips are doing. It can't be in how much money I have. It can't be in the job that I have or the job that I was hoping to get. It can't be in my reputation with somebody else. There's only one ground of hope because listen to me, any of that can collapse in a moment. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow, it's a vapor. There's only one firm, unshakable ground of our hope and that's in the person of Jesus Christ. The only hope that I might be saved from my sin, that I might be saved from death, the only shot that I've got to have this healthy marriage that I'm about to step into, the only shot we have for our children the only, the only hope that we have to, to live a life that's well-lived and pleasing to God is found in the person of Jesus. But what is it that we're hoping for from Jesus? Because that's kind of vague, isn't it? Like, well, I just hope it. Th- what is it that we're hoping for? Well, the next question. There, there's three things that we see in Romans that he specifically says that we're looking forward to. The first one is a new heavens and a new earth. A new heavens and a new earth. Verse uh, 20 of, of Romans chapter 8. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. The world was cursed because of the fall of man, because of sin. But, he says, but with eager hope, hope is faith looking forward. Here's what God promised. 
The creation looks forward to the day when it will, it will, it will, promise word, it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Right now, we live under the principle of the law, of the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is wearing down. And we look and we read the newspaper today, the floods and the hurricanes, and we know very well this last year, the, hur- the, the earthquakes, even a small earthquake, the way it can rock our state. Since there's, there's a day coming when the earth will not groan any longer, but it will not decay any longer. And Jesus, the risen Jesus, it's more than just him living again. He's ushering in this, this, this recreation of, of all of creation, physical and spiritual alike. And so we have this new heavens and this new earth to look forward to. But it gets beautiful, more beautiful than that. There's new bodies with no pain and no death. A couple verses later in chapter 8, we believers also groan, just like creation, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of the future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Amen. We too wait with eager hope. There it is again. Here's what we're looking forward to. For the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, accepted in the beloved, the new, including the new bodies he has promised us. There's a day coming when your pastor won't have to get hip surgeries anymore. Amen. There's a day coming when we won't have cancer. We won't have arthritis. There's a day coming when we, when we won't have cold sores. We won't have fevers. There's a day coming when we won't have to walk through war and abuse, or gossip and cliques fear, anxiety, and depression. There's a new day coming. Jesus got a new body, a body that he lives in right now physically that will never run out, that will never hurt. He says, you too. Uh, Romans 8 says he's the first fruits of the glory to come. That just like Jesus received this new body, one day when he comes back, we're all receiving these new physical bodies that will last forever. That's something to hope for. But he says there's even something more beautiful and deeper than new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth. And that is the glory, the glory of God. In three months, I'm going to stare down the aisle. This beautiful bride comes walking down toward me to marry me. Spend every day, well, probably not, the rest of our lives together. There's a hope in that. And even right now, we're long distance, not ideal. But I'll tell you what, there's an anticipation of what's about to come that helps get me through today. And there were things in the past that like, you know, something would happen in the day and you're kind of like, oh, it kind of really discouraged you. Right now, I'm walking on cloud nine, baby. <laughs> like a bulletproof vest, like whatever, that's just a thing. It doesn't matter. I'm in love. You know, it's like, you're kind of just floating around. Everything's good. You know, I know I've come crashing down to reality. I know, I know. Married people are giggling right now. Whatever. <laughs> shut up. Can you say shut up in church? I don't know. Um, there's a day coming. Romans 5 tells us this. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, marriage, anything else, it's, it's going to disappoint. It's, it can't be your God. But there is a day coming when our God will come back for us. And Scripture says we're going to see him unveiled in all of his fullness, the glory of God. You know what Hebrews 1 says? Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. So you say, what does God's glory look like? It looks like Jesus. And there's this day coming, do you realize this, when we are going to physically, eyeball to eyeball, see Jesus in all of his glory and splendor and live with him, walk with him for the rest of our lives, for the rest of eternity. So that our joy may be full. And in the meantime, it doesn't mean we're not going to go through hard things. But there's a hope that gives us endurance and courage as we go through this because we're floating on the love, the boundless, endless love of Jesus. And we need that hope in the meantime, don't we? Right now we see dimly. 
Right now, for some of us, especially, we're living in a circumstance where you go, brother, I can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't even know how I'm going to get through today. That's why faith does not look at sight. It looks at the promises that God has given us. He says, I'm coming back, and you'll see me, and everything will be made right when you behold my beauty, my love for you. So what does this look like in our lives? How do we reflect this? Are we living out union? Are we living out uniformity? Or are we living out true unity? What we're not called to is just simply union. Maybe you're still living with your spouse. Maybe you're still occupying, occupying the same bed, eating at the same table. You're technically still married, but you are not experiencing true, healthy, spiritual unity. Maybe there's a person in your life, a family member, somebody here at the church, I don't know who it is, but, but you're, you know, you're still around them. You're still, there's union there. But man, whenever they're not around, you're bad-mouthing them. You're resentful toward them. You're angry that they're not doing things your way. That's union. That's not unity. Maybe it's uniformity. Maybe, maybe there's somebody in your life that you're really demanding that they do things your way. If you're going to get along, that's great, but you're going to do it on my terms. Or it's the other side of that, the codependent relationship we talked about, where you're just trying to please them, so you're just doing whatever they've called you to do. And kind of being their slave, and that's not healthy. That's, that's not unity either. The unity that we've been called into. See, we're sitting in this room full of stronger and weaker siblings. We have different convictions. We all have a different conscience. One truth, one truth, but diversity in this unity. But among that diversity, if you and I will accept each other in the same way that Christ accepted us, he says what happens is you show the world who God is. We, his body, become the radiance of the glory of God right here, right now. It's this beautiful thing that we've been called into to show the world the glory, the love of our God. So is there someone that you need to reconcile with today? Because if we have disunity, this thing's not going to work. He's called us into this love for one another. And maybe you need to go talk to somebody. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need to confront somebody. Or maybe sometimes it's not a good idea to talk to them. You don't have to go up to them and say, you know, I just want to let you know I've been thinking really bad thoughts about you in my head. <laughs> like that may not be profitable. The Spirit will lead you in that, whether or not you actually need to go to that person or not. But the heart here is in our attitude and in our actions and in our words, there might be unity, acceptance of one another. So my prayer for us, my prayer for us is that the Holy Spirit would make us one. He would make us one in a way that we'd be holding on to the hope and the promises of God, a new heaven and a new earth and new body and get to see the glory of God one day. And because of that hope that he'd give us endurance and, and courage in the midst of whatever we're walking through today. And in that unity, we would glorify our God. Let's pray to that God. Father, help us right now in this moment to recognize we're talking to you. The God of the universe is listening and the reason he's listening, the reason he accepts these prayers that he hears us at all is because of Jesus. It's by grace that we enter into this place. It's by, it's by faith because of what Jesus has done for us that we can stand in your presence and not fall. And Father, you've unified us to yourself because Jesus accepted us, because Jesus put us first, that he sought our good over his own comforts and rights. Father, we're invited into that exact same thing as believers. There's someone in this room today that needs to take that step of repentance, changing their heart, their attitude towards someone, that maybe they need to go have a tough conversation. Lord, that by faith, they would endure and find courage to do what you're calling them to do today, this week. And Lord, help us to get our eyes off ourselves and try to find this temporary pleasure and put it on your promises that you're coming back one day and the full weight of your glory will be shown to us in the person of Jesus and we get a new body, and a new heaven, and a new earth. Father, today, for some of us, man, we are barely holding on. We feel like we're just free falling, and we fall on the rock of Jesus. And as we gather together to take the bread and the cup, that we would be reminded 
without Jesus, we have no hope that none of this is anything without him. Help us lift him high together. It's in his beautiful, unifying, hope-filled name that we pray and we worship. Amen.